The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for uh, for, uh, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open the Bible this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship and have a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin, if necessary, in privacy of our priesthood, and then we'll begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to gather together this morning to study your word. We know that your word says that those who worship you must worship you by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of truth. So the only way that we can understand how to worship you is by understanding the uh, revelation you've given us about yourself and what the uh, protocols are for worshiping you and that we do that on that basis. Father, we thank you that your word illuminates every area of our life and that by it we can learn how to live for you. We can adjust our thinking to reality that we may glorify you to the maximum with our lives. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, help us to understand how these things apply to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. We continue our study of what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. This is such a crucial issue because it relates to the very core of our spiritual life. At the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. And that means that at that instant, He creates a human spirit and simultaneously imparts that to us. It is that immaterial human spirit that enables us to understand the Word of God, that enables us to have a relationship with Him. But the human spirit in and of itself is not enough to overcome the problems of sin and to overcome the lust of the flesh. In the Old Testament, every believer was regenerated. They had a human spirit, and yet they were not able, on the basis of the Mosaic Law, which was an external standard of life, comparable to a standard of morality, they were not able to overcome the flesh. Because to live the spiritual life involves something more. That's, in one sense, what is taught throughout the Old Testament dispensations, is that if we're going to truly live for God, man, by man's efforts, cannot do it, He cannot save himself, neither can he live the kind of life that God would like for him to. So in the church age, we have a unique spiritual life that is based upon God the Holy Spirit. And this is something that I'm amazed is not taught very clearly. It's really not taught clear at all in the Reformed or Calvinistic tradition. I remember when I was in seminary at Dallas working on my Ph.D. and taking a seminar course on the... Theology of the Holy Spirit, we had to read several different theologies, and probably the best work, and though it's short on a few areas, the best work ever written on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was a work written by a Reformed theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper. Now, Kuyper was a brilliant man. Not only was he a brilliant theologian, but he also managed to be Prime Minister of the Netherlands and to conduct a major overhaul of their government and also to lead a true revival in that nation, which is fascinating. 
considering that in his entire 500-page work on the work and the person and work of the Holy Spirit, he never addresses the subject of the filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he just barely touches on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because in all of Reformed theology, they just do not seem to put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit and his unique role in the Christian life. And this is one of the major flaws in all Protestant theology since the Reformation. With the Reformation, they only went so far. Luther, Calvin, the Reformed tradition, Reformed theology relates to those areas, those denominations that uh, trace their heritage back to John Calvin, Presbyterian churches, Congregational churches, Reformed Baptist churches, although they would differ on that arena, in that arena of baptism. All of these trace their theology back to Calvin. And then in your Methodist churches, there is this complete overlooking of the doctrines of the Holy Spirit and how it relates to spiritual life. And it really wasn't until in the 19th century that you begin to see a recovery of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, that got distorted in the perfectionistic camps of Wesleyan theology, holiness theology, and then Pentecostal theology. It was, uh, there were different influences taking place through the revi- uh, revivals, through the uh, prophecy conferences, Bible conference movement, the late 19th century. And it was in that context that people like uh, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, and some others began to really work through a lot of the implications of what the Bible said about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, that sort of surprises a lot of people, and we get the... Mis, uh, we, we get misinformed in thinking that somehow historical, if something's historically new, that it may not be biblical. Well, just because the systematization of a certain doctrine is new doesn't mean that it wasn't understood in some vague way throughout the, the centuries. And you can always see that different people at different times do understand these things, but they just don't really work it out. They don't really investigate it. They're not asking the tough questions like, well, what exactly does this mean? And I know that some of you have been in churches where you've heard a lot of exhortations about walking by the Spirit, and yet nobody ever gets into any mechanics or tries to explain it. And unfortunately, that kind of thing is so true in so many churches and in so many theologies throughout history, is that you find that people just come right up to an issue, and then they just tend to restate what the Bible says and hope that everybody automatically knows what it means. So we're taking some time to try to investigate just what these concepts mean so that we can put them into practice in our own spiritual life. Now, verse 16 begins with this command, I say, walk by means of the Spirit. And what we have here... It's a very important phrase in pneumaty. Looks like this in the Greek, en plus the noun in the dative for pneuma. And it indicates that en, p n e u m a t i. And this indicates the instrument or means. So what we learn here is that the means for living the spiritual life, for having victory over the sin nature, is going to have something primarily to do, it's primarily going to have something to do with the Holy Spirit. And the way that we know that this is the Holy Spirit, because the word hagias is not used here, is because of some of the things said later on, for example, the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 And uh, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit. These phrases can only apply to the Holy Spirit, so they can't apply to the human spirit. So we know that the dynamic for living the spiritual life is going to be God the Holy Spirit. Then there is a statement. I say, walk by means of the Spirit. This is the mandate. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And we have seen that that is stated in the Greek in one of the strongest ways of negation possible. It's the use of the double negative plus the aorist subjunctive, which means it will, if you are walking by means of the Spirit, it will be absolutely impossible 
for you to carry out the desire of the flesh. And last time we, or the last two Sundays, we have been studying the doctrine of the sin nature, which is referred to as the flesh, because the sin nature is both material and immaterial. It is material in that it is located in the genetic structure of the body, and it is immaterial in that it extends its influence upon the soul of the individual. It is the sin nature that is the source of temptation. It is the volition that is the source of sin. And in the last two weeks, we have gone through several points related to the doctrine of the sin nature. We have looked at the terminology sarks, which relates to this material aspect of the sin nature. For example, in Romans 7.18, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. We have looked at uh, definitions and said that the basic definition of sin is that it is any mental, verbal, or overt act which violates the character, standards, and will of God which are revealed in the Word of God. And the sin nature is the capacity, propensity, and inclination in every human being to make life work independent of God. Now, one of the things that becomes obvious when you think about those definitions is that we're not restricting sin to that which most people think of as sin. Most people have a rather shallow or superficial view of sin. We have our list of the terrible two or the fearsome five or the nasty nine, whatever it might be, and you talk to people about, well, what are the worst sins? They immediately start off with overt sins like murder and adultery and child abuse or whatever the latest politically incorrect sin is, is defined by the culture, and uh, nobody goes to the Word of God to see how God defines sin. So God defines sin as any act that violates His character. But when you look at the sin nature, you see that because its inclination is to live independent of God, it's going to produce works that are not necessarily sin, but also include acts of morality. Remember the context of Galatians. Paul is talking to these believers in Galatia who have departed from grace. He talked about the fact that they fell short of grace earlier in the chapter, which means that instead of living a life in grace orientation, they're trying to use the Mosaic Law as the basis for living life. They're putting the emphasis on morality. So these are basically good people. We're not looking at a crowd of antinomians. An antino- the term antinomian refers to people who are against law, who rejected absolutes in the Christian life. And you find every now and then some Christians who think, well, Christ paid for all my sins, so since they're paid for, I'm just going to go do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to live like I want to live, and I know that I'm going to get into heaven because all the sins are paid for and dealt with. Of course, that is an abuse of grace, and Paul rejects that in Romans 6. And God is going to uh, severely discipline the believer who gets into antinomianism and licentiousness, and that life is not going to be a very pleasant life until they get uh, back with the Lord and back in fellowship through confession of sin. So Paul is addressing a crowd here that's basically moral. He's not addressing a crowd of licentious types. And that tells us that the sin nature produces more than just sin. Now we also saw by way of review that sin originated at some time in eternity past, we don't know when, among the angels. That God created a race of rational creatures that are much different from man, They are individually created. They do not procreate. They do not make baby angels. They do not marry. And so, however sin originated in the angelic order and however it was dealt with, we know that God must have had some way, because He is a loving God and a gracious God, some way of salvation was offered, but it was vastly different from that which we know in human history. Now, sin originated in the universe when Lucifer fell, And then we know that sin originated with mankind when Adam fell in the garden because he was originally tempted by uh, Lucifer, who was now known as Satan, who took the form of a serpent. And it's interesting to note that according to a U.S. News and World Report article about three or four years ago, that there was a discovery made in an archaeological dig in Israel of um, of a serpent that had legs. 
This was a fossilized serpent that had legs. So that means that because it was fossilized, it predated the fall, I mean predated the flood. So it would indicate that there were at least some serpent, some type of serpent that still had legs that probably died out as a result of the flood. But of course the serpent that Satan, the form that Satan took was cursed and had to go on his belly. He lost his legs. There were physiological changes. And when we studied the issues related to the fall, we saw that Adam's sinful decision had a dramatic effect on everything in nature. It changed nature. It didn't just change the nature of man so that he became a constitutional sinner and was no longer what he was when he came from the hand of God, but that his sinful decision affected his entire environment. Prior to the fall, there was a perfect environment. After the fall, it is a fallen environment. There are thorns and thistles. The creation groans under a curse. In every category of life, every category of botany, zoology, and anthropology have been affected by Adam's original sin. We saw that when Adam sinned, he died spiritually, and he acquired a sin nature. And that sin nature is passed on genetically to the human race. Now what happens is that at procreation, every cell has 46 chromosomes. At procreation, the man produces a seed that has 46 chromosomes, and through a process called meiosis, it splits and throws off 23 chromosomes, and 23 continue. The, the female, through ovulation, produces an egg that has 46 chromosomes, and through a process of meiosis, it throws off polar bodies at two stages, which leaves it with only 23 chromosomes. This process of of throwing off the polar bodies is a process of purification. So the egg is left pure and untainted by sin, whereas through the seed of the man, the sin nature is passed on genetically. This is why the virgin birth was necessary. When Jesus Christ was born, there was no human male involved. God the Holy Spirit miraculously caused the uh, egg of the woman to uh, be fertilized, and he supplied 23 perfect chromosomes so that the humanity of Jesus Christ would be absolutely sinless, and there would be a joining of undiminished deity and true humanity together so that as a sinless human being, he could go to the cross and die as our substitute. The result is, or the result of the transmission of the sin nature through the male of the human race, is that every single individual is born physically alive, but spiritually dead. That means they cannot have a relationship with God and they cannot go to heaven and they cannot do anything to gain God's approval. Every single person is born with every aspect of his being corrupted and polluted by sin. Furthermore, we cannot understand God. We cannot understand the things of God. We cannot understand spiritual phenomena because of the lack of a human spirit. So it is necessary at the point of gospel hearing for God the Holy Spirit to act as a human spirit for the um, unbeliever so that they can come to understand the gospel. Furthermore, we saw that Adam became a sinner by sinning. This is point number nine. I've just summarized the first eight points, and now we'll jump back into the outline at point nine. Adam became a sinner by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. Every human being is born with a sin nature, and that is why you sin. It is your nature to sin. It is the nature of a fish to swim. It's the nature of a bird to fly, and it's your nature to sin. And if you have a little baby, it's the nature of that little baby to sin, and your role and responsibility as a parent, and part of your role and responsibility is to teach them the Word of God and teach them self-discipline so that they can grow up and control their sin nature. Point number 10, we saw that sin changed man constitutionally. That term constitution refers to the basic composition or structure of something. Everything in the world has a constitution. Steel has a certain chemical constitution. Wood has a certain uh, organic constitution. 
an animal has a certain constitution. He's made up of biological life. And the Scripture says animals also have nefesh, which is the principle of life. They have an animal soul. Whereas human beings have a distinct nefesh because the nefesh is the Hebrew word translated soul or life. And the nefesh of man is in the image and likeness of God. And man was created, the human race was created, male and female, in the image and likeness of God. And yet when Adam sinned, that image became degenerate or tarnished. So that when Adam was created, he's created in the image and likeness of God. And then there's the fall. After the fall, Adam is changed, and when Adam and Eve begin to have children, the Scripture says they are in Adam's image, no longer in the perfect divine image. Although that is residual, it is tarnished. That is still what makes man unique, and that is why God sent His Son to die on the cross, because every human being is still unique and important because they are in the image of God even though they are obnoxious to God because of the sin nature. Point number 11. We saw that sin permeates every aspect of humanity. This is what is meant by the phrase total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as they can be and every human being is, a, is as wicked as they can be, but it means that in the totality of their person, in their soul, their self-consciousness, their mentality, their emotion, their conscience, their volition, every aspect of their soul has been affected by Adam's sin. Every aspect of their soul is different from the way it came originally from the hand of God, so it is all tarnished by sin. Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Ecclesiastes 7:20 and 29, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. In other words, they have acted independently of God, seeking to make life work apart from God. There are various misconceptions about sin in terms of its definition. Some people say that sin is selfishness, but that is not quite adequate. While all selfishness is sin, not all sin is selfishness. Another inadequate definition of sin is that sin is unbelief. But while all unbelief is sin, not all sin is unbelief. And then another attempt is at defining it is to say that sin is lawlessness, but that too needs to be defined. Sin is a violation of law. If you understand law to be a complete reflection of the character of God, and it's better to say that sin is any act that violates the character of God. In point 13, we saw that our sinfulness has a tremendous effect upon God. This is not an emotional effect or one that affects or changes his character, but it is that man's sin has elicited from God a phenomenal response because God in eternity past knew that Adam would sin God determined to provide a solution. And that solution is one that is adequate to solve the problem. That means God is not going to do much more than is necessary to solve the problem. He is going to do all that is necessary, but not more than is necessary. And what is God's response to sin? God's response to sin is that He sent the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to take on human flesh, to live a life as a man, and to go to the cross to die as our substitute. Now, the pain that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, endured on the cross far surpasses anything that you or I can ever imagine. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. 
the punishment for our sin, the punishment for every single sin, past, present, and future, ever committed in the human race, all of the most heinous sins that you can ever imagine, were poured out upon Jesus Christ during those three hours on the cross. And the pain that he endured was more than any of us could ever possibly fathom. And that is a radical solution. But it is every bit that was necessary. It was just adequate. God could have done nothing less than that to solve the sin problem. That's how horrible and horrendous sin is to God. In order to solve the problem of man's lack of righteousness, God had to go to tremendous extremes in order to provide the basic solution. And in our arrogance, we rationalize our sin that it really is not of that much consequence. It's really just a little sin after all. And we don't think about the fact that Adam's original sin involved the act of eating a piece of fruit. It would not make anybody's top 20 list of the worst sins in human history. And yet it is the worst sin of human history because it plunged the entire race into sin and is the cause, ultimate cause, of all suffering and all misery in human experience. So in order to solve that basic problem, God had to send His Son to die on the cross for our sins. So even our little sins, even our favorite sins that we think really aren't that bad, would have elicited this tremendous response by God because that's the only way to deal with sin. That's how horrible and destructive sin is. Point number 14. All sins, past, present, and future, all sins of every human being were paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, the issue is no longer sin. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? That's the solution. Sin is no longer the issue because every single sin is paid for by Jesus Christ. So the issue now is the righteousness of God. That is the standard. Nobody can get into heaven or have fellowship with God unless they have perfect righteousness. Man, has, man is minus R. He lacks perfect righteousness. Isaiah 65, 6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, so that man, even at his best, cannot come up to the high standard of God's perfection. And if you do not accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then all you have at the end of your life Add it all up, no matter how good and wonderful you are, it's minus R. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then God the Father takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and He imputes that or credits that to your account so that the basis for your salvation is that you now possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God looks at you and says, I don't see your negative righteousness. I see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and I declare you to be just. And that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that sin is not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. Now, once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you still have a problem. This is point 15. You still possess a sin nature. But now you have a new nature. You have a sin nature which is called the old man in Scripture because it goes all the way back to uh, Adam, it's called Adam's nature, Adam's original sin. There are various terms for it, but it is basically the sin nature. And at the point of salvation, you acquire a human spirit. Now, the propensity of the human spirit is towards God. This is the natural inclination of the human spirit, is to direct you towards a life with God. The sin nature has a different inclination, and that is towards independence. This is why there is a battle now in your soul, and this has gone on throughout history, but the human spirit itself is not enough to overcome the problems of the sin nature. So in the church age, we have the unique ministry of God the Holy Spirit in three ways. The first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is unique to the church age. The first believers ever baptized by the Holy Spirit were the disciples and believers on the day of Pentecost in approximately 33 A.D. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an experience. 
It is an instantaneous act that takes place at the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ alone. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, uses the Holy Spirit to transfer you and to identify you with His death, burial, and resurrection so that we become positionally identified with Christ and we are entered into union with Him so that we are new creatures in Christ. That's all related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nothing like that ever took place before in human history. Second, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. He takes up His residence in every single believer at the instant of salvation. And as is consistent with the ministry of God the Holy Spirit throughout history, He makes our body a temple for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory. You may not know it, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all take up residence in the believer at the instant of salvation. So that our body is indeed a temple or dwelling place for the Trinity. And then third, we have the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, where God the Holy Spirit works in our life to teach us doctrine, to recall doctrine to our mind, to store doctrine in our soul, to fulfill the whole process of metabolization, and then to produce in us a transformed character, to change us into the character of Jesus Christ, and to produce in us certain character qualities that reflect Jesus Christ. And that's what we will be studying when we get down to verse 22 under the category of the fruit of the Spirit. So it is these three ministries of God the Holy Spirit that make the spiritual life of the church-age believer radically different from that of any believer in human history. We have assets and privileges as a result of this that no other believer in history has ever had. This is why the, the least believer in the church age is greater than even the greatest believer of the age of Israel because of all that has been done for us and provided for us through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And so it is through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we are going to be enabled to have victory over the sin nature because this battle continues. And it is a battle between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us. And this is the thrust of the verse that we're talking about. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They are at war with one another. And the result is that you may not do that which you please. So verse 15 focuses on the fact that we now have a new nature, a human spirit, and sets up the basis for warfare in the soul. Point 16. In the church age, the Holy Spirit has been provided to enable the believer to fulfill the divine mandates for living out the spiritual life. And this, in this passage, involves the concept of walking and, as we have seen in Ephesians 5.18, the concept of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is part of the mechanics for being able to walk. Now, before we get any further, we need to look at point 17. We need to understand the mechanics of the sin nature, and we need to remember... What Jeremiah 17.9 says, that the heart, that is the inner lobe, the thinking part of the soul, the mentality of the soul, is more deceitful than all else. This is the uh, rationalization qualities of the mind, that we rationalize away our wickedness, our sinfulness, and we get caught up in arrogance, in self-deception where we say, well, that's not really a sin. We start to rationalize it. And then we get caught up in self-justification and we try to uh, justify our sin. So that the heart, the mentality of the soul, the inner part of the mentality of the soul is very deceitful and we are in uh, a lot of self... Believers get in a tremendous amount of self-deception. So let's look at the makeup of the sin nature. 
Well, I don't have the overhead with me, so we'll just draw it up here. Looks like this. Draw it out in forms of in a form of a diamond. This upper area here is the area of strength. Down here we have the area of weakness. Now we call this the area of weakness because that's the area where we're most prone to to sin. Whenever this type of a situation comes up, we, our knee-jerk reaction before we ever think, as soon as that we get in that situation, we turn, draw, and fire before we ever stop to think about it. The sinful response is the automatic re- response. And in fact, we're usually quite comfortable with those sinful responses. We find that, that we think, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we can handle those problems and those situations best through our own sin nature. This, this is the area that produces personal sins in three categories. We have overt sins, like murder and adultery. We have uh, sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, maligning, lying. We have uh, sins of the tongue and we have mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins such as anger, mental attitude sins such as hatred, jealousy, envy, all of this is part of the production of this area of weakness. And the area of strength is where we don't yield to sin, but we do produce many good deeds. And we call this human good or dead works. It's called dead works in Hebrews 6.1. And then the motivator of the sin nature is in the middle. This is the lust pattern. Lust pattern is the internal motivation of the sin nature. Produces lust in a variety of categories and combinations of categories. There's power lust, approbation lust, the desire for approval to get stroked, to get recognized. There are a lot of people who make it through life and they... They have tremendous success in the human realm because they're motivated by approbation. They're the ones who are driven by getting all sorts of recognition rewards down at at the office, and they're the ones who like to put every single piece of paper they ever got in life or every little detail up on the wall so everybody knows that they accomplished something. And uh, that's not that it's wrong to put your diplomas on the wall, but I'm talking about people who put everything on the wall. They want you to know uh, everything so that they can get stroked, and they, they are motivated by approbation. You have money lust, the desire for money. Materialism lust, the desire for the things that money can buy. Social lust, the desire for recognition, the desire to have friends, putting an emphasis on friends, on romance, on uh, fellowship. You have sex lust, chemical lust. Pleasure lust, crusader lust. This is the desire that every time something happens that you disagree with, you want to go on a political campaign in order to straighten everybody out because everybody is so messed up in life. That's crusader lust, and you want to make sure everybody gets straight. A lust for revenge, as well as inordinate ambition resulting in inordinate competition. There's nothing wrong with ambition or competition in and of itself. But when you start getting to the point where that feeds your approbation lust and your power lust, then you have gone beyond the pale and you are being uh, driven by your uh, lust patterns of the soul. Trouble with lust is that it divorces a person from reality. Lust places a certain object. Whatever the object of lust is, whether it's money, whether it's materialism, whether it's recognition or power, lust defines happiness and meaning for life in terms of that object. That if I'm going to have happiness in life, then I have to control the people around me. I have to be in control of my life. And so you get people who become very obsessive, very obsessive compulsive disorders, a psychological term, and yet the Bible just recognizes it as simple lust to control. I think it's better to stick with the biblical terminology because then you can find a biblical solution to the problem. You get caught up in uh, trying to control people or maybe you have a lust for uh, sex and you think that uh, sexual relationship is going to be the key to happiness and the key to joy. 
or you think of um, uh, social lust, that being involved with certain kinds of people is going to be the key to meaning and, and purpose in life. And so the lust pattern starts to divorce a person from reality and distort reality in terms of whatever is the object of lust and causes a person to start pursuing all sorts of different uh, strategies in order to fulfill that lust. And so these become uh, human viewpoint strategies of life to try to come up with meaning and happiness, and the result is always maximum misery in life. Now, that may not appear for a while. It may take 10, 15, 20 years of chemical abuse, 15, 20 years of alcohol abuse or pleasure abuse, whatever it is, before you finally realize that you're empty in your soul, before you finally realize that this doesn't work and you're ultimately miserable. And then usually what happens is instead of looking for happiness in terms of power lust, then you shift gears and you start looking for happiness in terms of pleasure lust. And so you're constantly shifting from one lust pattern to another in order to try to find uh, happiness and meaning in life. And it's a complete rejection of everything that God has to say. You have different mechanics, the way things work. For example, you have approbation lust, and you can have approbation lust towards either man or towards God. And let's say that in your particular sin nature, and remember, folks, most of you are married, your sin nature is different from your spouse's sin nature. And I think one of the most important things that couples can do, when, especially before they get married, is to figure out what the uh, sin nature of the spouse is like. Because you have to live with that person's sin nature for the rest of your life. And if their sin nature has a trend, and out here you have your trends, on one side you have a trend towards legalism and asceticism, and asceticism is the idea that I've got to impress God with what I'm giving up. And over here you have a trend, trend towards licentiousness, legal and, uh, ant, licentiousness and lasciviousness and antinomianism. Well, if you have a trend towards legalism and self-righteousness, and your spouse has a trend towards licentiousness, you're going to have a lot of problems and conflicts. And you better determine whether or not you're willing to live with your other, with your spouse's uh, trends. Now, if you didn't figure that out, it's too late now. Don't go say, well, I married the wrong person. I can't live with their sin nature anymore. I'm going to go find somebody else whose sin nature it is that I can live with. No, the issue is sanctification. As you grow in spiritual maturity and you control the sin nature, then you can live together. That's what a Christian marriage is all about as you're growing together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and you both are learning to operate on the principles of the spiritual life instead of operating on the, on the sin nature, then you move towards Christ-like character and so the, the effects of the curse literally become rolled back. Now, I'm not saying you become perfectionistic or the sin nature is no longer as powerful, but because of the overpowering impact of God the Holy Spirit the effects of the curse are diminished in Christian marriage. So let's say you have approbation lust towards, uh, towards God. This will then hook up with the trend toward legalism and the trend towards asceticism. And so as you uh, seek to fulfill your, your lust pattern to gain God's approval, you're going to start coming up with all kinds of ways in order to impress God with how wonderful you are and how moral you are and how good it is that, that uh, you're in His church so that He will be very proud of you. And the result is that this is going to produce an incredible amount of self-righteousness and you are going to make everyone around you absolutely miserable with how good you are. And before long, God is going to have to deal with your insatiable arrogance. Now, on the other hand, you may have approbation lust toward man. This sometimes will work in conjunction with social lust. And so what happens here, especially let's take the other side of the...
somebody who has a trend towards licentiousness or antinomianism. Their lust pattern is approbation, so they want to be accepted by other people. And this is coupled with a social lust. So in order to be accepted by people, they're going to start compromising the basic values that they have in life. And they're going to start saying, well, I know it's really wrong to do that, but you know, if, I, if I take a stand for it now, then, then they're not going to like me. They're going to think I'm some religious nut. So I'm going to just keep my mouth shut and not say anything, and then hopefully over time I'll get an opportunity to witness down the road. But right now I just won't make any waves. And so in order to fulfill the lust for, for acceptance, what happens is the, the values and absolutes of divine viewpoints start being compromised, and sin nature is in control of the soul. And ultimately that is going to again produce misery, and it is ultimately self destructive. So, that takes care of approbation lust. Let's say you have power lust. Sometimes you get this in a church, and men with power lust sometimes end up as deacons in the local church because they think that this is going to give them tremendous power and decision making, and they're going to straighten everybody out and show how the church ought to actually be run so it's much better than it's ever been before, and they've God's gift to the local church. Now, I don't haven't detected that we have that problem here, but I've certainly been in churches where I've had that problem and I've seen that problem at work on a deacon board, and there's nothing that is more miserable for a pastor to deal with than five or six different deacons who are all operating on power lust, and they're going in different directions. I think in my first church, I spotted at least half the men on the board were operating on either power lust or approbation lust, and about half of them were moving towards legalism, and the other half were moving towards licentiousness. And it took about two years before that just exploded all over everybody. And that was a real mess. Nothing, no group of people can be more miserable than a bunch of believers who don't understand the dynamics of the spiritual life, negative to doctrine, and are just operating on giving their lust pattern free, free, free reign. So you have approbation lust, power lust, and crusader lust. Crusader lust often works in conjunction with approbation lust towards God and legalism and asceticism. The person operating on, on crusader lust has usually elevated two or three different things to, to such an inordinately high status that if they are violated, the reaction in their soul is an incredible anger. They're angry at society. They're angry at government. They're angry with the Democratic Party. They're angry with the Republican Party. And they're mad at Christians because isn't the church supposed to transform the world? Well, we have to get out there and we have to start marching up and down with our signs so that we can let everybody know that we're going to be salt and light in the world. And that's usually how they argue in the passages they go to and misinterpret and misapply. And so then they, they give themselves over to crusader lust and they get involved in Christian activism. Now, Christian activism is really almost an oxymoron. See, activism has its roots in pure human viewpoint thinking. That somehow if there's some social evil or social wrong, we're going to right it by going out and having demonstrations or sit-ins or nonviolent uh, uh demonstrations, whatever it may be. And of course, some of the major thinkers who came up with this this whole philosophy for activism were people like Mahatma Gandhi and a number of others who were not believers at all, not Christians, not operating on a Christian worldview. And what's happened is Christians have gone over here into human viewpoint thinking, and they said, oh, well, that's a good methodology. Let's just incorporate that methodology over here, and maybe we will... uh, be able to have an impact on our culture and our society. But you're doing a right thing, maybe. Sometimes it's a wrong thing. But let's say your goal is right, but you're doing a right thing in a wrong way. And this is something that many Christians don't understand, is it's not only important what you're trying to do, it's how you're doing it. Methodology says something. And if you're using the wrong methodology to accomplish a right goal, it's still wrong. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. 
And a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. And so Christian activism is using the devil's tools in order to try to whitewash the devil's world and somehow you convince yourself that the goal is going to glorify God and it won't. That never happens. Christian activism is one of the greatest dangers to our society today and it just shows the arrogance that is operating among many, many Christians today as well as the level of frustration that's expressed because we're living in a world that is in that is falling apart. We're living in a society that is negative to God, that has rejected the Scriptures, and so many people, are, are, many Christians are reacting to that and trying to figure out some way to recover our society and to get back to what they think was a more Christian society. Now, there have been times in the history of this nation when Bible doctrine had a greater impact. And it's very frustrating. It's a, it's a very difficult test to live in a in a culture and in a world where you are increasingly viewed as a minority and as a hostile minority. And that puts a lot of pressure on, on believers to try to figure out how to solve the problem. And rather than trusting God, rather than going about the task of just teaching the Word, making sure the Gospel is clear and realizing that the issue is volition, they always try to come up with some new method. Well, the problem is some method. We're just not doing enough. We're just not, we just haven't latched on to the right technique. And if we just had the right technique, then we could change everything. And the problem is not methodology. The problem is not technique. The problem is volition. And we live in a culture where the vast majority of people have rejected Christianity, rejected the gospel, and many, many Christians have just rejected biblical Christianity, and the result is we're under divine discipline. Where You can see that we're going through the various stages of divine discipline as outlined in Romans chapter 1, where God goes through three different stages where He gives people over to the results of their sin nature. And the final result is going to be the destruction of any culture or society that continues to give the sin nature that level of dominance. And this is what is, where we are headed as a, as a culture unless people turn back to the truth of the Word of God. So we always have to watch out for crusader lust because as soon as we wake up in the morning and see the newspaper and realize what somebody in Hartford or in Washington, D.C. or some other governing power has done, we immediately want to react in anger. And that's because we tend to think, in this society anyway, that politics changes things. And the only thing that really changes anything is Bible doctrine. And the solution is never politically political. The solution is always spiritual. And no matter what we do, unless there is a transformation of this culture based on the gospel and doctrine, then all we're doing is, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, polishing the brass on a sinking ship. And that's exactly what most Christians are trying to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in politics at the local level all the way up to the national level. Every believer should be involved in the political process. We should be politically knowledgeable. We should know what the issues are. We should write our congressmen. We should be involved. That's fine. That's different from activism. Christian involvement is one thing. Christian activism is something else. Because every citizen in this country has certain roles and responsibilities in relationship to government, we should be involved. But that's different from going out and marching or going on a crusade or, or all of these other things that people come up with to try to influence the political process. Okay, we have a sin nature. Sin nature produces personal sins. It produces human good. It's motivated by lust. And it trends in one of two directions, either towards legalism and asceticism or towards licentiousness and antinomianism. And the interesting thing is everybody's sin nature works different. Not only that, but your sin nature today works different from the way it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. When you were 25, you might have trended towards licentiousness and antinomianism. And 20 years later, you might trend towards legalism and asceticism. The things that you ease, the temptations you easily yielded to when you were 15 or 16 might be quite different from the ones you, you uh, succumb to 
when you're in your 50s or 60s. Every era is different. You change. Everybody changes. The person who sits across the church from you has a completely different sin nature from you. And the areas where he has no problem, you have problems. The area where you have problems, they don't have problems. That's why we're not supposed to judge one another because we don't have the right to. Just because you don't fall prey to their sin doesn't mean that you don't fall prey to any sin because we all have sins that easily beset us. So this is the problem in the spiritual life is that we're involved in this struggle between the sin nature on the one hand and the Holy Spirit who indwells us on the other hand. So before we get any further, I want to turn over to James chapter 1 and we're going to see something about the dynamics of how the sin nature operates. Remember, the sin nature is the source of temptation, not the source of sin. It is your volition. You are the one who decides. Now, you may say, well, I didn't know it was a sin. That's not an excuse. Ignorance is no excuse for violating the law. That's a basic principle for all law. Just because you don't know what the speed limit is, just because you're ignorant of the fact that you're driving through a school zone and the speed limit is 20 and you're driving 40 is not going to change anything when you hit some poor kindergartner walking across in the, in the crosswalk. Sincerity is not the issue. Uh, that example may shock some of you, but it's intended to. See, too many people think that because we're sincere, because we firmly believe in our convictions that somehow that makes it right, Well, we can be sincerely wrong. And just because you're ignorant that something's a sin doesn't mean you didn't want to do it. You did. You wanted to do it, and you did it, so it's a sin, and you're responsible for it. The same thing is true about uh, in the realm of insanity. There's no such thing biblically as an excuse by reason of insanity. The reason a person becomes insane or or mentally deranged, unless there's just some odd physical, biological reason for it. Usually the biological distortion is the result of decisions, not the cause of bad decisions. But you start off in life and you're not born schizophrenic. You're not born mentally deranged or insane. Nobody is. unless They may have mental problems, but that may be as a result of genetic defect or birth defect. Then as you begin to go through life, day in and day out, This starts from the time you're probably, I don't know how early it is. It could be three days after you're out of the womb. But you start making decisions. Now, the thing is, when you're one year old, you are not volitionally conscious. But you are making volitional decisions. In fact, I've been around a lot of people who are 30 or 35 years of age. They're not volitionally conscious either. Sometimes you wonder if they're conscious at all, but... You're not aware you're making decisions, but you are making decisions, and those decisions start setting habit patterns. And you can watch this with your children. You can see it from the time they're infants that they start responding and reacting to certain things in their environment a certain way. And this develops habits and trends for how they deal with frustration, problems, adversity, whatever it is. Now, those habits or trends are all based on human viewpoint. Now, whether you like it or not, that child is born with a sin nature. And that means that that sin nature is either producing human good or it's producing personal sin. One or the other. What is one thing that that child cannot produce? child cannot produce divine good. So no matter how wonderful that child is, it can never make any kind of decision and never carry out anything that's not either human good or personal sin. Now where this gets hard for people, because we get emotional, we look at that child and say, but they're innocent. How can you say this about that innocent young life? Because it's not innocent. None of us are born innocent. We have to understand what the biblical doctrine of homardiology teaches. is that we are all born with a sin nature 
Adam's original sin has been imputed to that sin nature. And because of that, we are going to, from day one, produce personal sins. Now, just because we're not cognizant of it yet, doesn't mean it's not sin. Now, what happens is, between the age of, let's say, one day and eight years, this person is, has developed habit patterns, thought trends, and various strategies based on human viewpoint for solving problems and making life work. Sometimes we use the term manipulation. And you can see how your kids have you twisted around your finger and know just what buttons to push to manipulate you into whatever they want. They, they do this by the time they're four or five years old. They, don't, they haven't thought it through consciously, but they're doing it. Now, I'm going to shift gears here and show you where this leads us. Let's say you have a case, and this happens far too often, of a young child who's born into a family where the parents are really screwed up. And there is serious physical and sexual abuse in that family. And that child is raped or mistreated or beaten up or cigarette burns on that body day in and day out. It's miserable. It ought to make us weep when we think about these, these scenarios. But you know what? That child is doing the same thing. It's developing on the basis of his sin nature, trying to solve those problems. And the result is they start making decisions. They start going into extreme cases of denial and projection and distorting their reality just so they can handle this horrific situation that they're in. But all those solutions come from the sin nature and their human good and their personal sins. And ultimately, even though for a while it may make life work for them and they may be able to handle that, 20 or 30 years down the road, it's going to destroy them. It's not any different. The difference is in degree between that and the person who says, oh, well, they're operating on pleasure lust. They're saying the key to happiness and meaning in life is partying. So we're going to party and we're going to have lots of alcohol and drugs and we're going to have lots of women or men or whatever your preference is. And as long as they seem to have that, there is a level of happiness in their life and they think everything is working. But sooner or later, it may be a year, it may be five years, it may be 20 years, sooner or later life is going to come crashing in on them. Now, we look at an example like this and we say, okay, it's wrong to solve the problems in your life through drinking and through sex and through partying and pleasure, but this child here is innocent. Innocent. And he doesn't even know he's making bad decisions. That's what makes it hard for us to understand this scenario or to accept this scenario. That's why we always have to stick with with what doctrine says. Doctrine says, as a sin nature... Every one of us starts trying to figure out how to make life work on our own terms from day one. Whether the problems are extreme and excessive or whether the problems are small, we're still trying to figure out how to solve problems in life apart from God. And that's the thrust of the sin nature. And what happens is that between birth and adulthood, let's just say 20 there, I know that's being optimistic, but between birth and adulthood, we develop all kinds of strategies, both overt strategies and thought strategies for handling the problems in life. And now something dramatic happens in your life. You begin to realize that maybe your strategies don't work. Somebody gives you the gospel and you're saved. Now what happens is you've got a whole lifetime to relearn. From day one, you have been drilling yourself. You've got all kinds of patterns. You don't even think about these things anymore. You just automatically respond and react to certain situations certain ways. And now you have to change all that. That's why the Scripture says, that we are to renew our minds. We have to rethink everything in our life because now, for the first time, because we have the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine, we can see what reality is. 
Now, it doesn't matter whether you're the, a child growing up with a silver spoon in his mouth, where you have everything given to you, or whether you are a child getting the most horrendous abuse imaginable. The result of both is that because you're a sinner, because you're not saved, because you don't have a human spirit, you do not understand how to view reality. So every human being up to the point of salvation is divorced from reality and they can't interpret what's going on around them correctly. Now in some scenarios, there might be a little more establishment truth than in other scenarios and so they're a little closer than at other times. But the bottom line is because they're a sinner, they're trying to make it work. And now you're saved. You have a human spirit, the Holy Spirit. And over here you have a sin nature that's been dominating your life for 20 years. Now you have to figure out how you're going to win this battle because the battle is on and it takes place between your ears. And that's why the issue is to learn doctrine so that we can renovate our thinking, learn what reality is according to God so that we can now make accurate, objective decisions, analyze our problems, and solve them on the basis of the only solutions that count, and that is those that are in God's Word. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word this morning to study these things and to see how Your Word addresses every single situation in life and helps us to understand the basic realities of our nature. We know, Father, that that You knew from eternity past that Adam would sin, and we knew that You would understand all of the horrible dynamics of sin and the destructiveness of sin in human history. And You provided a perfect solution for sin. You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute, and You provided the information we would need and the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit so that we would have the power to appropriate, understand, appropriate, and apply that information so that we could see our lives changed, changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope, without eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now to respond positively to the Gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It doesn't involve works. It doesn't involve moral reformation. It doesn't involve church attendance. The only thing that's important is faith alone in Christ alone. The Scripture says it succinctly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, recall them to our mind, that we might be able to think them through and understand them, see how they relate to our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.